0: you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4 uh, in the Black Pew Bibles. That's on page 992. Uh, so by way of context, we're returning to this letter from Paul to uh, this, this young pastor who had been sent to, um, to lead this church in Ephesus. And so far in this letter... Uh, Paul has been teaching about how the church functions, and he ended chapter 3 with this uh, with this confession, this statement that summarized um, some portions of the belief of the early church. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And um, so one of the things that we need to remember is that uh, these chapter divisions, you know, this was a letter that Paul wrote, this, and these chapter and verse divisions were something that were added later on for us to be able to help identify, you know, when I say uh, uh, to, to be able to help identify what it is that we're talking about. And so there isn't there's a break here in the chapters, but this is a logical continuation of that statement, specifically the part about Christ being manifested in the flesh. So let's let's read together uh, in in chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So there's three sections to this passage of text. There's the, there's the universal eternal principle that that Paul outlines, and then there's the problem that he's trying to address, and the correction that he wants to give in response to that problem. So the eternal principle that we see is in verses one and two. Uh, so this is this is something that that was written to the church in Ephesus, and it applies just as much to us today. Uh, and then there's the problem statement, the the specific issue in Ephesus that um, that they were encountering. we see that in the first half of of verse 3. And then the remainder of the passage is the teaching that Paul is giving to correct that problem. So there's the principle, the problem, and the correction. So the principle we see in verses 1 and 2. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the point here is that there is a path towards error, mapped out by the enemy, and believers are lured down that path by liars whose consciences are seared. So this is the same sort of idea that we saw um, back in chapter 1, where he talked about teachers of the law, or back in Ephesians 4, where he, he talked about people whose hearts were hardened, hearts were calloused, they had they had subverted, had suppressed their consciences for so long that they had developed essentially calluses on their hearts. So these are people, these are not people rather, who are just mistaken. These are not people who are just wrong because they don't understand. These are people who know on an intellectual level what the truth is, but they are teaching something different for their own ends. And so it says, uh, and, and where it says here, in, in latter times, uh, that's a phrase that Paul uses periodically, and it, and it refers to the period of time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Now, where are we? We're right in the middle of that, right? This still applies to us today. Uh, and so this principle, this idea that false teachers will arise is something that was true in Ephesus. In sixty A.D., and it's true today, in twenty nineteen. Um, so we have this principle, and then Paul identifies the problem specifically with what they were teaching. Uh, they were teaching uh, in in uh, verse three here. They were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created. Uh, So this is a problem that plagued the first-century church from its very inception. Um, The the term that later became attached to it is is Gnosticism. Um, And essentially what the Gnostics believed was that the material world was bad, and the spiritual world was good. This came from a a sort of a confluence of uh, the old Jewish diet prohibitions where they needed to maintain a state of ceremonial cleanliness and then a, a, a Greek, um, the the fancy word is asceticism, but this this belief that the material world, the world that you could see and touch and hear, was all bad, and everything that was good took place in the spiritual world. Um, and so, by indulging your senses in the material world, you were in effect weakening your spirit. And so, the the Gnostics ended up teaching that. People needed to refrain, Christians needed to refrain from things that tasted good, that felt good, were beautiful, or were comfortable. Uh, and so a lot of the, you know, you have this picture of a monk living in like a cave or something and, and wearing burlap sacks for clothing and that sort of thing. That, that was the idea there. In order to be closer to God, you needed to deprive your thing, yourself of good food, comfortable clothing, that sort of thing. Um, And so that's what these teachers were, these false teachers were teaching. They were teaching that in order to be accepted by God, you needed to refrain from getting married and remain celibate celibate, and refrain from eating, um, specifically we know from some of the other letters, uh, red meat. So they looked at the gospel and they decided that it wasn't enough, that God's grace, that God's mercy, it's just not enough to get the job done. They said we need to have we need to be able to do something to contribute to our salvation and ultimately this is still a pretty common attitude right you know we we want to be able to play a role you know we want to be able to say well God did his part and then I did my part and don't we make a great team when we work together there must be some way for me to be able to help God out with this there must be able to there must be some way for me to make God happier with me, to make God love me more. But the reality is that God's love is perfect and complete and boundless, and there's nothing that we can ever do to increase it. It says in in Ephesians 3, Paul wants the readers um, to understand that Christ dwells in their hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. And when we read that in the context of, of Romans 8, I love this passage, so I'm going to go ahead and read it rather than just reference it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's love is perfect. It is whole. It is complete. And it is given out freely and completely to his children. And furthermore, there's nothing that we will ever be able to do to separate us from his to separate us, to separate ourselves from his love. So if there's nothing that you can do to decrease his love, how then could there be anything that you could do to increase it either? But this was the problem. These teachers were falsely teaching that you needed to abstain from these things in order to be loved more by God, to be approved of by God. And so, and so Paul is writing that they might understand that marriage and food are things that are created by God, it says in verse 3, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and with prayer. So this refers back to the original creation, right? When God looked upon the world that he had created and he said, this is good. And it also contains echoes of the story in in Acts 10. You can put a bookmark in that and, and read it after the fact. But this is the story of Uh, Peter and this Gentile um, named Cornelius who was a centurion Uh, and um, Peter has this vision of this this cloth being let down from heaven and all of these reptiles and and things that Peter as a Jew wasn't supposed to eat because they were unclean Uh, and there's a voice that calls to him and it says rise Peter, kill and eat and Peter says By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And so Peter goes on after this vision the same day. And he gets this call from Cornelius to go and and visit him. And Peter takes this vision and he applies it not to the food that was being eaten, but to the people. And so we have this this ceremonial law about what to eat and what not to eat that was the guardian for the Jewish people. It was the steward for the nation of Israel, allowing a way for people to come before God without being perfectly righteous while we waited for the arrival of the Messiah. While we waited for the arrival of Christ. Because in Christ, all of the requirements of that law were perfectly fulfilled. And so for those of us who are found in him, those who, of us who have placed our trust in him, rather than, our, than in our own understanding, in him we have fulfilled the requirements of the law as well. And Jesus said as much um, if we read in Mark 7. i smart. I bookmark these. We read in Mark 7, uh, verse 14. And he, that being Jesus, and he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, the the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So it's not the things that we eat, it's not the things that we take into our body that make us clean or unclean, but what truly makes us clean or unclean is instead the condition of our hearts. So if our hearts are still in rebellion against God, if we are still seeking after the things of this world, then there is nothing that we can do outside of our bodies that will make us truly acceptable before him. You can keep kosher. You can stay away from drugs and alcohol. You can eat healthy. You can work out. You can go to church. You can work with the poor. You can read your Bible. You can give away money. These are all good things. And these are all things that we should be doing. But none of these things will make you one speck better in God's eyes. Instead, how we stand before God is by turning away from our sin. By repenting and saying, God, I've tried my way and my way got me real messed up. I want to stop following my way and start following after you. So when we do this, then all of these things that I that we just mentioned will come about, but not as the means of our salvation, not as the way that we are saved, but as essentially side effects of our salvation, as a demonstration, as a proof of our salvation. And so all of these things that these false teachers would have us abstain from, food, or marriage, or money, or rest, they can be idols and they can be distractions, but that doesn't mean that we avoid them, but that we receive them with thanksgiving. Because that's the idea right here, that everything is to be received with thanksgiving. And when we do that, when we receive God's gifts with thanksgiving, we reorient our hearts towards him as the source of all things. So all the things that we have, we have because he gave them to us. We have food, we have clothing, we have places to stay. Right? We have material wealth only because he has given it to us. We have families only because he has given them to us. And so all of these are good things when we recognize that the source of them is not us, but it's God. But when we recognize it, that's when we start to have issues. When we think that we have wealth because of our own cleverness or efforts. We fail to give thanks to God for what he has given us because we fail to recognize him as the giver of all gifts. So the liars that Paul is indicting here, they took took that view. They said marriage and good food are not gifts from God, and therefore Christians shouldn't partake of these things. They were attempting to become the arbiters, really, of what was and what is and isn't acceptable for God's people. They were saying, look how wise and look how clever we are. We figured out this, this God secret that nobody else really knows. And ultimately, they were by doing that, they were exalting themselves. They were building themselves up because of this secret knowledge and wisdom of men, rather than by rather than exalting God by being thankful for what he had given them. Now, there's a similar parallel um, passage in Colossians 2. Starting in verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those were all required observances in the Old Testament, the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth. That is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referencing to things that all perish as they were used according to human proceedings. And this is the important part here. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these are rules that have the appearance of godliness, but they're useless in restraining the sin that still entangles our hearts. And lives. And ultimately, these rules serve to distract us from the one thing that we should be focusing on the head, Christ, and the glory of God displayed in him. So, if we're not saved by following these, the, this type of rules, then how is it that we're saved? If we're not saved by doing more good than bad, then how, it, how does it work? When we look back to Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We were dead in our sins, enslaved to the the patterns, to the ways of this world, and we were enemies of God. But while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels and traitors against God, he loved us. And he purchased us out of that slavery to sin and to death. And by placing our faith, our trust, our hope in him and in him alone, we are promised that on that day when all of humanity, living and dead, is judged for their actions, then we will be judged not according to what we have done, but according to what Christ did on our behalf those who have trusted not in themselves but in Christ, will live together with him forever in a new creation. And so these teachers wanted to add another dimension to it, another layer to it. They taught that we had to do something to add to that salvation, that there was a piece of that puzzle that was missing that we had to supply. Because we have that desire, right, to contribute something to receiving or keeping our salvation. In Ephesus, they might have said, you know, God saved me. But all that I do now is I need to make sure that I follow these dietary restrictions. But today we might say, well, I I need to pray a, a particular prayer. I need to vote a certain way. I need to go to church a certain number of times. I need to share Facebook posts about God. But ultimately, this, this idea that we need to contribute something to our salvation is founded in too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God. So we think too, we think too highly of ourselves and we think too lowly of God. Because especially for us today in America, the gospel feels like charity. And, and we don't really like to be the recipients of charity, right? We like to have something to offer, something to trade. And so this false teaching is appealing because it makes it seem like, you know, that, that, that our salvation is an exchange between us and God. Where we do something to earn our salvation. And so we promote this, this higher view of ourselves than we should like we bring something to the table. And it also promotes this low view of God, that God needs something, that he needs our contribution to be able to, for us to be able to be saved. It's like God is there wishing, wringing his hands, hoping that we can get our lives sorted out so that he can save us. This is the God of creation, right? Right? And he said, let there be light. And there was light. Light didn't exist. It wasn't that it was just dark. The absence of light, the idea of light didn't exist. And he spoke and it was. And we have the audacity (laughs) to sit here and believe that he needs our help to be able to accomplish anything at all. So how then does the Bible teach us to handle these things? What would the Bible have to say to those people in Ephesus? It says in Romans 14, speaking to the same subject, that one person esteems one day as better than another, speaking about the idea of a Sabbath, while another esteems all days alike, Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So the difference lies entirely in the approach, right? A correct view, a correct understanding of these things makes much of God, whether they eat, whether they abstain, whether they get married, whether they don't. If it's done in thanksgiving, it makes much of God. It magnifies God. But an incorrect view makes much of something else. It makes more of ourselves than we should. So these false teachers were making much of the deprivation of the body and making much of themselves themselves. Now, there are times and places, right, when the body needs to be deprived for good health, to keep a brother or sister from stumbling, to be able to fast for a time. But these actions, when done rightly, build up God. They glorify God rather than glorifying man. But their actions were to build up themselves rather than building up God. So the question becomes who is glorified by what I do? God or me? Our attempts to play a part in our salvation raise us up and they attempt to lower God down. They glorify ourselves rather than glorifying God. Additionally, attempts to make our salvation about something as small as money or success or prominence or power, those attempts minimize God by making salvation not about him or his glory or his plan, but about us. So rather than rejecting these things that God had created for their good, These teachers should have accepted them with thanks and used them to give glory to God. And they knew that. Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So they know, they knew, that the world exists for God's glory. They knew that our salvation is given to us by God's grace alone, and that we are saved for the glory of God alone. They knew this, they know this, and yet they twist and they distort the truth for their own gain. They're positioning themselves as the gateway of truth for financial gain, for an increase of power or prestige. there was was a similar issue in the church in in Galatia, um, which is who the book of Galatians was written to. And so Paul, in his opening of of that book, says to that church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ." But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There is one gospel. God's truth is singular. There can be many different ways to understand it or explain it, but there is ultimately one truth. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This was Paul's hope, right? If you read the book of Acts, Paul persecuted the church. He sanctioned murder. He tossed Christians into jail. And so nothing that he could do from that point forward would ever be able to atone for the sins that he committed in persecuting the church. This was Peter's hope. If you remember Peter, just hours before Christ was arrested, he declared, I would die for you, God. And it wasn't even the next day and three times in a row he denied knowing anything about or having anything to do with Christ. And so this was Peter's hope. This was the hope of, of John Newton. If you know his story at all, he was the captain of a slave ship responsible for transporting, abusing, and dehumanizing thousands of innocent men, women, and children. And God grabbed onto his heart and convicted him of his sin. And in the latter years of his life, he wrote those lines. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And so if God's grace is more than enough for them, it's more than enough for us. And so the offense of these teachers in what they are saying is that they are effectively saying that God's grace isn't enough that you need to add something to it. God's grace is too weak to save you unless you follow these rules. But reality, the truth of the Bible, is that no matter where you are or where you've been or where it looks like you're going, there is mercy. And there is forgiveness for sins and love and belonging found at the foot of the cross. It's available to us without following a complicated set of rules or having to somehow earn it. But instead, it is given freely. So regardless of how we understand it, our whole culture knows that our souls are thirsty for something. And Jesus Christ is the living water that satisfies of that thirst. And when we drink of him, we will never be thirsty again. That's not to say that it's easy or simple or smooth sailing. The Bible promises none of those things. But it promises instead that if we will repent of our sins, if we will turn away from our sins, if we will cease our rebellion against God, that he will see us through those trials and tribulations that a life of faith brings with it. And also, we're given great traveling companions. We're given the church. And so we get to walk together, from Joyce to Ivy. The call of us, to each one of us, to every one of us, is identical to continually be repenting of our sins, turning away from seeking after the things of this world and instead seeking after Christ. And so the call then ultimately is to reject these false teachers. To reject these false teachers who would tell you that you need to get yourself cleaned up before God could ever love you. To reject these false teachers who would tell you that you need to make sure that you do your part to earn your salvation. These are lies that are designed by the enemy to exhaust you and to discourage you and to keep you from the knowledge of the truth that Jesus Christ, the son of God came into the world, lived was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day so that he could give you new life, so that he could wash you clean of the guilt and the shame of your sins, so that he could change your heart and give you a desire to conform your life to his pattern. And so what we sing about what we pray about. The reason that we gather together with such joy is to celebrate what he has done for us, not what we have done for him. So today, if you desire this, if you desire freedom from the guilt and the shame and the weight of your sin, if you desire to find healing and peace and contentment, It's available for the ask Ask for forgiveness, ask to have faith. And if you ask those things of God, he is faithful to give them to you. And let let somebody know, not because it's required, because it's not but because we as a church want to help you. We as a church want to come along beside you and to encourage you and to love you so that we can walk this long journey of faith through this life, not alone, not separately, but together as God's children. Let's pray together. Father, we are Absolutely undeserving. There's no question in my mind when I look deep inside my heart, when I know, when I look and see and know who I truly am, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth your love. I'm not worth your mercy. I'm not worth the blood that was shed but you shed it anyway, God, to accomplish this great work to save me because I was utterly incapable of doing it myself. Help us each to remember God. That it was by your mercy, by your grace alone that we were saved. And Father, we are, we know that we are not supposed to be keeping that quiet. We are not supposed to be hiding that, God but instead we are supposed to be proclaiming with our words and with our actions the same mercy that is available to everyone. Father, give us the joy, give us the blessing of being able to share in that faith with those around us. Father, we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.